Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, Ryan, and Peter. Episode 197, recorded for January 25th, 2023. AWS throws another $35 billion on the tire fire in US East 1. Good evening, Peter, Jonathan, and Ryan. Hey, Justin. Hey, yeah. hello. Yeah, it's uh, it's been fun, uh, a fun month so far. We have lots to talk about once again, as always. Uh, so let's get into it. Uh, first up, Amazon and Stripe announced a press release this week about Amazon's plans to broaden its use of Stripe's payment processing platform significantly as part of an unexpanded partnership the company announced. Stripe, in turn, will expand its use of AWS Public Cloud. The payment startup already runs multiple internal workloads on AWS. And apparently, Amazon first adopted Stripe in 2017, and it used the platform to expand its market into Asia and Europe, uh, which I guess uh, if you're a big, you know, massive e-commerce site, you don't want to run your own PCI infrastructure, or you must be getting a hell of a deal from Stripe. <laughs> well, I imagine it's tough on localization, right? Different currencies and all kinds of, you know, the exchanges. So I can see a lot of advantages of using a partner there. Well, and, and in this particular case, it's like, yeah, you'll scratch my back and uh, I'll scratch your back and we'll give you a great discount on your infrastructure if you give us a great price on uh, you know, all your transaction fees. That doesn't seem anti-competitive at all. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's at least not new anti-competition. Square's not mad, I'm sure. <laughs> it's been like that for quite a while. I would be curious to see what percent, though, of Amazon's payments are uh, going through Stripe. Well, isn't also Amazon a, a competitor like Amazon Payments? So it's there's a lot of a lot of questions about this that I thought was kind of interesting. Um, but yeah, I can see you know again the localization Asia and Europe sure take care of the regulatory risk. You don't have to worry about collecting the taxes. You let them do all that work for you. Uh, that probably makes your life easier. But yeah, it definitely isn't a global. It's not an all in. <laughs> it's definitely not a global. Uh, you're using Stripe for everything, but uh, still interesting to say the least. Yeah, but Stripe rolling on Amazon, seemingly, with their um, use of Nitro Enclaves and things like that for secure workloads. We're starting to see more more, more and more uh, press releases that actually mention that technology now, because originally, mm-hmm. like, well, who's going to use this and why? Mm-hmm. Now we know. Yeah. And then it, it's kind of funny, because I read that and Stripe, I'm like, oh, that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, some people have money. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, all right. Well, let's move on to earnings. I, I don't actually know where our sound effect went. It's lost. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> loud, loud noise. <laughs> uh, but we're all going to cover Microsoft today because uh, you know the way the recording schedule works out is that Microsoft announced earnings yesterday, uh, but Alphabet and Amazon don't announce earnings to the second of February, which means we wouldn't talk about earnings at all for three weeks, and we just felt that was too long. So we'll talk about Microsoft today, and then we'll, we'll catch back up, hopefully with a sound effect uh, for Alphabet and. AWS later when I find where the audio file went for that. Uh, Microsoft Cloud revenue was up 22%. Uh, overall, Microsoft revenue rose 2% to $52.7 billion for its second fiscal quarter, just missing Wall Street's expectations, and profits dropped to $17.4 billion, or 7% drop, uh, not counting the special charge related to layoffs we'll talk about in a little bit. Microsoft Cloud revenue increased 22% to $27.1 billion. Again, this does not include just Azure. This is Azure, Office 55, and the commercial portion of LinkedIn. Uh, other areas of Microsoft business were not good, including Windows, Xbox, and the device business all showed declines in revenue for the second fiscal quarter. So that recession is still coming, folks. 
Is that so? Is that that Windows dropped twenty seven percent? Yes. Oh my goodness, that's disaster. But I mean, I guess it's pretty good if their revenue rose and they're on Windows business dropping that much that they've successfully diversified and transitioned their business off of a technology that's going to continue, I'm sure, to decline. Yeah, so they, they equated the 27% drop uh, included a decline of 39% in revenue from versions of Windows licensed to computer manufacturers, which means that the, the Dells, the HPs of the world, they're hurting too. Microsoft mm-hmm. blame factors including continued PC market weaknesses in general. Yeah, I mean, it seems all areas that are heavily driven by consumer, you know, spending. So like it's, you know, the cloud business is one thing, but yeah, Xbox is people are paying for video games and, and consoles and Windows is very tied to computers. So it's, yeah, not a good sign. I wonder if they include Windows licensing costs uh, incurred by Windows users in Azure in Windows revenue or in Azure Ooh, revenue. Interesting. So it might just be a transfer? I, I wonder, yeah, to make the cloud business look a whole lot better than it might be otherwise. Hmm. Yeah. A couple of other uh, interesting little tidbits. Uh, Teams uh, is up to 280 million active users in the quarter, uh, but it's only 270 million a year ago. So it's grown 10 million, but that's not as growth explosive as it, everyone seems to make it think it is. And then uh, the security business run by Charlie Bell was up to 20 billion in the past year, uh, which last year was 15 billion. So you know, Charlie Bell is doing just fine, growing that revenue over there in the security business. Good job, Charlie. I mean, the, the team's adoption in 2020, like, it doesn't surprise me that it's not maintaining that velocity, like, because it was ridiculous. Like, it was a huge spike. And so, it, unsustainable. Yeah. So, the fact that it's still growing at all, I think, is pretty impressive. But I think it's also just the way that they license it as part of Office 365 and the deals they work with businesses. Well, and I think, yeah, we talked about recessionary headwinds and, you know, how do you justify Slack if you already have Microsoft <laughs> when mm-hmm. one comes with your Microsoft licenses already? So yeah. I suspect that, you know, continuing to see pressure on that side of the business will be interesting. But yeah. again, I continue to say that the strategic play that Salesforce should make with Slack is that they should include it in your Salesforce licenses like they did Chatter. Mm-hmm. But uh, no one from no one from Salesforce has called me for strategic guidance yet. So yeah. <laughs> it's clearly not listeners to the podcast. Yeah, clearly, because I continue to try to sell it for ridiculous amounts of money. Yeah. All right. Well, let's move on to AWS news. Uh, there's a new region in Melbourne, and you might have remembered Ryan and I talking about the new region or local zone in Perth last week. Why they couldn't combine these into one press release? Because they like to have mindshare in the news. Melbourne <laughs> region is the second infrastructure region in Australia, in addition to the local zone in Perth. Uh, and this is in the APAC region. It has three availability zones uh, named AP Southeast Dash Four. So there you go. New, more, more Australia needs for you. Mm-hmm. And you I, know, great DR option for those Australia customers. Yep. Yeah, Singapore has always been the the go to place for that, but definitely having two local to Australia is going to be mm-hmm. much preferred because data transfer costs um, between Australia and the rest of the world is still extraordinary. And latent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Remember trying to watch, when I was living over there, trying to watch the Niner games was brutal. Yep. The nice thing about um, 
you know, this particular thing is it's still not quite perfect for all of the, uh, you know, DR needs again, cause they're still a little close to Sydney. So you still have that mm-hmm. Perth thing. So if you do need, you know, DR capabilities for something that needs to require distance, you have Perth and then Melbourne. So that's, that's a nice double whammy. Now that you have a couple different options. If you can get away with Melbourne, do that. Cause it's a full region. And if you can't use Perth, uh, now we talked about Perth last week. There's also local zones now, apparently in Lagos, Lima and Querétaro which is apparently in Mexico, and I'm sure I butchered the name. Please don't write me. (laughs) Uh, These are all tied, again, to the U.S. East 1 region, uh, which is also getting an expansion with apparently an investment of $35 billion between now and the end of 2040 to expand the U.S. East 1 tire fire region in Virginia. Apparently, this includes an eligible grant that Amazon is eligible for of $140 million from the government of Virginia. Uh, and apparently, since 2006, they've already spent $35 billion. So just doubling the size of US East 1 to make that blast radius for those outages much, much worse <laughs> in the future. <laughs> A grant of $140 million. Replacing. Yeah. Right. I can't wait for Bernie Sanders to complain about the $140 million. <laughs> Getting rid of all the M1s. <laughs> I know, really. You got $35 billion in construction costs, so you're, you're doing just fine with that $140 million you gave them. <laughs> it's interesting, the local zones sprouting up all over the place now, and they're obviously popping up in places um, where industry is, you know, these are all industrial centers in South America and North America, obviously. One's in Mexico. North America people, not South America. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. if, if Oracle get away with all their data centers in people's garages, why can't Amazon? <laughs> there you go. I mean, that really is the difference, right? It, it is about that resiliency and the investment they spend at the infrastructure to make sure that it's highly available, even in, in the case of, you know, pretty calamity or calamitous events. So it's a local zone isn't that much different in terms of of a region except for that resiliency. So it's kind of crazy. And then there's the porting advisor for Graviton. The porting advisor is an open source command line tool that analyzes source code and generates a report highlighting missing and outdated libraries and code constructs that may require modifications to work with Graviton <laughs> along with recommendations for alternatives. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> well, AWS is just sick of people saying, well, this is this, this performance isn't of this Graviton processor. It's just not as great as you think. And I put my workload on it and it's, it's slow as molasses you know, comes to find out like this is an ancient version of Elasticsearch, which uses an ancient version of SSL, which uses a very old cryptographic library for decrypting those and terminating SSL things. And yeah, if you don't have efficient code and it's constantly making lots of microservice transactions across all these things, it tends to add up. So it is pretty funny to see how they're battling that sort of perception that Graviton's maybe not as fast when it really is just a matter of updating to more recent math, really. Well, I mean, like my Mac, uh, you know, which runs an ARM processor, every time every time someone announces that they're coming Mac native with a silicone version of the app, I'm the first one to upgrade, upgrade to it because I get rid of all of the Electron garbage apps that are out there and everything mm. else. It's like, yes, I'm finally on a native thing. And like WhatsApp just upgraded this last week to a new version that supports it and magically uses so much less memory and CPU and all these things that are great because it's not doing any of the translation layer to x86. So, yeah, using a, a proper libraries is always nice. Yeah, Electron's the worst. It is really the worst. We should, we should have a section called the worst <laughs> every, every week. <laughs> this week, Electron's the worst. <laughs> 
I mean, what, what, what Slack? It's a great Electron app. What are you talking about? It only uses up, you know, seventy-five gigs of memory. So <laughs> those new, those new MacBooks uh, just came out uh, last week. Uh, we don't talk about them very often, but the, they came up to ninety-six gigabytes of RAM, and I was thinking, oh, that's nice. Slack yeah. and uh, maybe one container, and I'm set. Yeah, yeah. So it's great. Maybe a couple Chrome tabs. Maybe maybe a couple Chrome tabs. Maybe <laughs> it might be able to read those in, depending on the container and when it's outside the startup process. Uh, well, I like to talk about IPAM whenever it comes up with a new feature, not because I care about the feature because this feature is kind of dumb, but I really just I want to see if it still costs me an arm and a leg. So uh, checking in on IPAM, uh, you can now apparently manage IP addresses in accounts outside of your AWS organization because you have accounts outside of your organization for what purpose that you want to manage with a centralized IP manager? Makes no sense. Uh, this all uses the AWS Resource Access Manager and it simplifies your IP manager workflows by enabling you to use a single IPAM across all your AWS accounts. Now, the pricing on this is uh, still ridiculous. Is 5,000 active IP addresses will still run you $972 hmm. per month. For a, dyna- for a DynamoDB table. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. it's just a DynamoDB table on a special protocol that everything knows how to use, so it's, it's sort of frustrating. But yeah. Yeah, like I want, I want the service to be a thing, but until the pricing gets to be not stupid, uh, I continue to struggle with everything about this. Like, yes, you need to deploy a whole class A to your Kubernetes cluster. Sorry, that's going to cost you a fortune in your IPAM. You're welcome. <laughs> so, do they charge? Do they actually? Char- yeah, they charge per active uh, IP address. <laughs> so, if you have a large container farm and all those things, like there, there's lots of ways you get charged on the service. It's ridiculous. It's pretty nice. So they just say if you if you no longer wish to be charged for IPAM, simply delete it <laughs> using the management console. Well, that's awesome. Very helpful. If only I could back it up so I could restore it later. Then I'd only have to recover it when I needed it. <laughs> and then I can get then I can get IPAM serverless. This is a let's write a narrative quick. <laughs> we'll, sh- we'll send it to Microsoft, to Amazon. We have an idea for you. Uh, yeah, I wonder why it's so expensive. I wonder if there's scaling challenges or they, they're just worried that it's going to blow up because it does seem like it's using the cost as sort of a, a gating mechanism somehow, as they want to do sometimes. Yeah, which, you know, it's fine for a new service, but then, you know, it it, it doesn't do a lot either. It really just shows you, you know, routing and security domains. It shows you the, you know, monitors the IP address space. So you see what's in use and what's not in use. And so you know when you're going out. You know, you view the history of IP address assignments across time, and then of course automatically allocating ciders to VPCs for those of you who are in VPC heaven to deploy as many of those as you possibly can, and then of course troubleshooting network and enabling cross-region and cross-account sharing of BYOIP IP addresses. So they're screwing you in multiple ways because, like, yeah, I want BYOIP. That makes sense with my IPv4 addresses I already own. Oh, guess what? You get to pay for IPAM because I don't think you can limit it to just specific IPs. <laughs> if it's in the VPC, it's going to be Kind of for in the cost. Well, but it's all, yeah, I guess that's true. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, and you think about, you know, dy- dynamic workload that, and this is maintaining the history of all that IP association. You know, this is, you can see that being heavily used by security tools and, and, you know, tracking access across your environment. So it's, it is sort of interesting. And I can see that blowing up quite dramatically. Well, then in IPv6, it gets worse yeah. <laughs> so, and more expensive. So, uh, you know, again. IPv6, you should just use it once and throw it away. Never use it again, right? Yeah. 
Well, like I said, any, anytime this comes up, I, I take a look at the pricing to see if the pricing got more reasonable. So uh, I'll keep you guys posted, but don't don't hold your breath. Yeah, it's been multiple years now of this pricing. I'll continue to manage the way I always have. Excel Little spreadsheet. spreadsheet. Yeah. <laughs> you could buy InfoBlocks or what is the other one? Blue Cat, but then mm-hmm. it's just an Excel spreadsheet, but in a web form. So. <laughs> All right, GCP. Alphabet, uh, the parent company, of course, GCP and Google, is going to be letting go 12,000 employees amid a broader tech layoff. This represents 6% of its global workforce. Sundar Pichai said, over the past few years, we've seen periods of dramatic growth. To match and fuel that growth, we hired for a different economic reality than the one we face today. And I am confident about the huge opportunity in front of us, thanks to the strength of our mission, the value of our products and services, and our early investments in AI. To fully capture it, we'll need to make tough choices and say goodbye to 12,000 of you. Merry Christmas. Wait, someone's got to start keeping a tally for it. To, they are. I, I have one. Uh, oh, good. So, you, uh, yeah, layoffs.fyi uh, tracks tech layoffs. So, there's been 200 tech companies with layoffs. And right now, the count is at 59,448 so far in 2023. Uh, it's actually probably a little higher than that because they don't have firm numbers for a bunch of companies yet because it, it kind of trickles in over time. But uh, yeah, you're already uh, doing quite nicely. And if I add in your number to 2022, uh, you're at over 210,000. But your, your yeah. prediction was just 2023. So uh, you're well on your way with only 5x more of that, and you'll be there, So, which is depressing. Unfortunately, yeah. But yeah. What have they done though? This is, what, this is what I don't get. Like to match to match and fuel that growth we hired, blah blah blah. What do they work on? What do they do? What do they deliver? What, <laughs> Not a lot. What? Have you seen the have you seen the announcements for GCP? <laughs> yeah. I, I have. And I'm like, well, what did you do with these people? Nothing. Well, I mean, that was wasn't that long ago. We were talking about the CEO of Salesforce. Yeah. Um, complaining that, you know, the more recent hires weren't as productive and and you know, like it's it, there is some uniformity across tech and, and all these things, at least from the, the CEO perspective and, and what they're saying. I don't know. You know, I don't, I, I know what I know and what I see. And it's just like, well, it's clearly expanding too fast. Like with, with this idea that the, the level of growth that we saw in 2020 across these things was going to maintain and just, I don't know. doesn't seem right. Agreed. Well, after you lay off 12,000 people, the next thing you do, of course, is invest in a new region. <laughs> so Google continues to apparently support the Middle East uh, governments with another data center region, this time in Kuwait. When open, the Kuwait region will deliver high-performance services that make it easier to serve users faster. Duh. Uh, there is a quote here from Saad Alanada, Minister of Commerce, Industry, and Minister of State of Communication and Technology Affairs for Kuwait. Through our strategic partnership with Google Cloud, the state of Kuwait will continue to make great strides towards digital transformation, a main pillar of our new Kuwait vision, Kuwait 2035. Our alliance with Google Cloud will have significant benefits to Kuwait and will provide a major boost to achieving the country's socioeconomic priorities, including promoting efficiencies in government, enhancing healthcare and education, and diversifying the economy. Uh, it's a very small country, <laughs> so I don't know exactly where this data center is going to go and like if it gets really popular how big it can actually get because <laughs> there's not a lot of land in Kuwait in general. I've been there. I've driven across it in less than three hours. It's not very big. It'll just get more expensive. That's how they solve that problem. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, you want servers? Well, yeah. if you had to pay for this in Kuwaiti dinar, it's already very expensive because I, <laughs> I remember, remember being sadder than when I handed a hundred dollars to the, uh, the money transfer person at the airport and he handed me back 24 uh, Kuwaiti dinar. And I was like, Oh, 
that's expensive. Yeah. And then you go to the first place and you order a burger and they're like, that's 10 Kuwaiti dinar. And you're like, oh God, backwards math in your head. And you're like, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that's uh, it's not cheap in Kuwait. So it's going to be interesting to see. Is it not cheap because the people over there are generally um, better off, more wealthy because of the industry they're in? Oh yeah. The oil money is, the oil right. money is flowing quite heavily in Kuwait and the, the value to the dollar is really why it's, as painful as it is, um, but uh, yeah, it's it's a very rich economy. Lots of oil money, lots of you know limited population of people sharing in that oil economy, and so everything is expensive. Yeah, I, I guess that's why it leads on to diversifying the economy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wonder that's gonna the uh, the gold's gonna run out. <laughs> uh, log analytics and cloud logging is now GA and Google. Uh, this is powered by BigQuery. Uh, a capability that lets you search, aggregate, and transform all log data types, including application, networking, and audit log data at no additional cost. The GA also includes additional expansion of uh, features, including multi-region support for US and EU, improved query experience to save and share your queries, and support for custom retention periods up to 10 years of logging. So it's great. That mistake I made when I put it in debug mode is now going to live with us for 10 years. (laughs) (laughs) Delete. Yeah. I mean, this is... It's a difficult problem facing a lot of businesses, and you know Google's smart to sort of build this into the product because a lot of companies just send all the logs, and whether you're doing analytics on it or we're just storing it forever, it's all making money for them. Yep. But you know, a lot of times logs aren't even valuable unless you have a sim to look at them, or you have uh, you know other processes that do it. So a lot of these things you want the logging, but you don't want it necessarily in your Elasticsearch cluster. You know, using up all your shards and all your capacity. So it's nice to have this option. So if you're using something like Cribble, you can basically have Cribble send non-important logs to GCS, and then have other logs that are important go to your sim or go to the right thing based on certain you know matching patterns that you put together. So this is really a nice way to kind of help you on cost management if you're in logging and you're trying to solve you know cost out of control for storing all the logs of debug that I put in. All right, moving to Microsoft uh, and Azure. Uh, the story we saved from last week, because Ryan and I were like, well, we already knew about the GCP layoff. And so we were like, we should talk about this layoff at the same time. Uh, and that is that Microsoft has announced they're laying off 10,000 employees. Uh, Satya wrote a blog post about it and shows how many of their customers are being cautious as parts of the world are now in recession and other parts are anticipating one very soon. Uh, 10,000 jobs is about 5% of the company. And while they eliminate roles in some areas, they will continue to hire in strategic areas elsewhere in the business. Uh, severance costs will be about $1.2 billion. We're going to put that in the earnings. They're also looking to change their hardware portfolio and consolidate their office lease space to further lower costs. Uh, reports include some cuts to Azure were part of the overall reduction as well. Is that math right? That's like $120,000 per layoff. Uh, I mean, wow. they talked about you know keeping... If you had equity investing for a period of time, you know, for six months, they would still pay that out. So there's a lot of fees. There's a lot of things that they're doing. Plus, they typically pay for uh, benefits for a period of time. They pay for, of course, you know, every week of service for, uh, you know, however many weeks of service per year of service to the company. Those are there. And Microsoft has not been one to do a lot of layoffs, which is one of the problems in Seattle is there's not a very healthy startup culture. Because uh, unlike in the Valley, where companies you know, boomed and busted, then people got kept getting spread out to startups, they all just keep working at Microsoft's middle management. <laughs> so now maybe yeah. the startup culture will get a little different in Seattle too. We'll see. 
So I think a lot of a lot of long tenured people probably got taken out in this layoff. Right. Uh, in some cases. Yeah. Across Amazon too, right? So for the Seattle yep. area. Well, if you lay off 10,000 people, uh, you get a lot of money to invest in other things, potentially. And apparently they took that money right out of their headcount savings and invested it right into OpenAI LLC uh, with a commitment to invest uh, $10 billion over several years into the OpenAI LLC. Built as the third phase of a relationship that started in 2019, the deal also establishes Microsoft Azure Cloud Service as the exclusive platform for OpenAI workloads, including GitHub Copilot, Dali 2 Image Generator, and ChatGPT, natural language models across research products and application program interface services. And we talked last week, uh, Ryan and I, that uh, they just launched the Azure OpenAI GPT-3 service, and soon we'll have a ChatGPT service available to you as well through the Azure uh, system. So I do suspect that we'll start seeing Google and or Amazon announcing more AI things <laughs> in future conferences. Pete. Yeah, all the publicity behind this as well, behind ChatGPT and Dali, uh, the, the, the Azure can wish for, for better a better time to launch something like this. Yep, 100%. Yeah, it is it is crazy how much, like, this. the timing of this has really worked out. So I'm sure it's taken a long time, but... I mean, it started this investment in 2019. I'm sure with the yeah. dream this would happen at some point. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Smart move. It just may go down as the, the fastest... Yearly prediction win for me. It might, yeah, yeah. This is all crazy. The, all, the, all the only yearly prediction win for me. I think it was like twelve days. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean it's yeah, nailed it. Yeah. yeah, both Jonathan and Peter are looking real pretty for their yearly predictions yeah. right now. <laughs> I forget what what crazy thing I said, but uh, I, don't, I don't remember what I said. Another either. data center underwater, probably like submarines in space or something. Something tells me I won't be getting it again this year. I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think I'm going to get it this year either, though. So you're you're a good company with me because I don't yeah, remember what I yeah. predicted, but I'm not feeling good about it after these guys won so quickly. Yeah, no. <laughs> We're going to have to listen to them gloat for the entire rest of the year. Too. I know, it's an entire it's year of them gloating. It's going to be unbearable around here. Have you been waiting months and months to hire your new AWS, GCP, or Azure architect only to have them be poached at the 11th hour by a startup with a juice bar? Initiatives stalled because you're having trouble hiring? Well, I have a simple solution, Foghorn Consulting. Foghorn Consulting provides top-notch cloud engineers to the world's most innovative companies and can be burning down your DevOps and cloud backlogs as soon as next week. Foghorn certified AWS, GCP, and Azure professionals are armed with infrastructure as code and from day one will be designing performant, optimized cloud-native or hybrid environments that deliver on the promise of cloud. Their FogOps solution even provides on-demand cloud engineering to augment your existing teams. Visit www.foghornconsulting.com or send an email to cloudtalentnow at foghornconsulting.com and tell them the CloudPod sent you. Your dedicated FogOps team is with you for the long haul and they bring their own juice. All right. Well, that is, uh, that's all the big news we want to talk about this week. And uh, let's move into our Cloud Journey series. Uh, last week, uh, Ryan and I talked about IAM and the importance of IAM in your Cloud Center of Excellence strategy, how it means, you know, it sort of relates to your architecture. Uh, and somehow we talked about it for 30 minutes and didn't mention permissions in any way possible, <laughs> uh, which was sort of fun. But uh, this week, we're going to pivot over into talking about the role of security and uh, GRC, or Governance, Risk, and Compliance, uh, in your CCOE. So uh, let's uh, open it up to you guys here. What are some of the things that you're thinking about as you think about 
you know, your security liaison to your CCOE? What do you want them to work on? Where do they start? What do they think about? I think one of the first questions is how are you going to delegate accountability for security in your organization? You know, in the when we had centralized IT with one data center, it was super, super obvious that you're going to have a central group that's accountable for security um, issues. But in the cloud now, we see companies who don't want their developers to get slowed down by uh, a group whose sole goal is to protect. And that means no is always the right answer. And so, you know, how do you how do you balance you know getting security out of the way from being a gate from deploying all the time with needing to meet your privacy and security and compliance requirements? And so, you know, is that is that a are you going to leave a central group responsible like accountable for security breaches, or are you going to have like a CCOE for the cloud that um, advises? but you know and, and potentially monitors and tracks but leave the accountability to the uh, business units who are wanting to walk that line and want to increase their velocity and not get slow, slowed down in the cloud yeah i think probably the toughest challenge that i've ever faced with with bringing cloud to a business is really just that transformation at the grc level for their for you know just managing how secure your cloud is and, and gathering evidence. And it's, it's, it very quickly turns into a model where you can keep the same way that you've been doing it in your single data center, where you've got a single source of, you know, access control and, and someone to gather that evidence. But you want, if you want the velocity, you really have to democratize your access to cloud and your usage of cloud. And with that, you have to expand out the list of responsible parties to people with the proper business context, because there's no point in having a centralized org that's just rubber stamping these, these access approval things. It's not actually keeping you secure. But then working with your GRC partners, they're very frustrated by that because they now have to go and talk to instead of one person, you know, several different people to try to gather that evidence and, and to communicate out the, the risk program and, and how they need to evidence all, all the things. And it's, it is really challenging. And because it's not technical, it's not really my wheelhouse. And so it was exhausting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think if you, if you leave GRC kind of to their own devices in this talk, in this conversation, they they go find all of the interesting mappings. So they start taking all their security frameworks, ISO and SOC and all these, and they start mapping the controls against all these things. And then they just say, like, well, we'll just take the control we had on ISO 27001 and we'll just apply it to your cloud, right? Mm-hmm. And so I, I think where you sort of have to kind of take a step back with GRC and say is, like, let's really establish the standards and the guidelines that we want to adhere to from a security perspective and then let that feed into the controls. And what you're going to find, I think, in that scenario is that the controls that you had for on-prem and for a data center don't work. Mm-hmm. Or if you did do them, you would just end up building that data center in a sky. And we talked about that on several of these talks where you don't want to get into that situation. So you have to you have to start at standards and you have to agree to, from a technical and a security perspective what those standards are going to be and then feed that into the control framework. And sometimes you have to even introduce new control frameworks, like the Cloud Security Alliance is a great one. Uh, really cloud focused, but sort of maps back to ISO in some ways. So there's a very clear way for them to think about GRC, but allows you to, you know, talk about those conversations. And this is a good opportunity sometimes too, is we're talking about 
you know, separation of duties and how does separation of duties now change in a cloud world? And did you actually update your separation of duties policies when you did CICD or DevOps? Probably you didn't because, you know, ITIL's still out there running rampant. Uh, but, you know, there's other ways to do these things, or other ways to do secure software delivery um, that, you know, again, take that cloud transformation story that you're doing for your technology and trying to move faster and say, how do I make my security policies allow us to move faster but securely? Yeah, I think I think the, the role of CCOE really is around transformation because the implementation of those controls will likely look very different in the cloud than it, than it did in the data center. Yeah. Maybe, maybe they're not necessary at all. But yeah, what, what we don't want to do is say, you know, for, for somebody working with PCI is when we need to have, you know, two firewalls, one between the DMZ and the web tier and one between the web tier and the app tier. Well, what does that look like in a VPC? It's, you know, the, the, those, those appliances are, are sort of built into the networking fabric of, of the cloud. And sure, you can go away and you can buy Palo Alto's or Cisco's or Juniper's and, and deploy appliances and make it look like a data center in the cloud. But is, is that the best choice for the business? And I think the answer is rarely yes. Yeah. Well, again, that's, that's not having a discussion about concepts, right? Because again, what is a firewall versus a security group versus a network ACL? Um, how, do they, how are they different? How are they the same? And, and the reality is a lot of things you're getting from a security firewall appliance um, is something that you can get with a security group, especially for access rules and, and basic ACL stuff. Um, and then you get into the question of like, well, we want to do layer seven packet inspection and all these kinds of things. And that's where you get into bumping the wire technologies and some of these other options. And so a lot of the use cases of why you potentially would have had to run the Palo Alto um, in your security environment in the cloud has now been replaced by other cloud native services. And a lot of times the things that they maybe think they want have better, more scalable options in the cloud. You just have to have the conversation. I mean, I look at cloud DLP on Google and say, you know, that's an amazing piece of technology that prior to, you know, having a service, you'd have to go buy that from Symantec or from other, you know, Forcepoint or one of these other DLP solutions. And it's a big, massive lift. And now I'm just like, well, all I have to do is point the cloud DLP uh, system at the database and it'll tell me where all the PII data is and all the things that match credit card data is. And that's actually more transparency for GRC, which they would never have had before. So there's some things you can sell them on too and say, like, this is the power of what you're going to get. Just like you could have done with Chef if you implemented Chef compliance and some of those more advanced Chef features back you know, when Chef was the big thing. You get some interesting use cases out of that too from a compliance perspective. Again, you kind of moved on from those paradigms, but there was opportunities where you could have brought GRC along. And I think those are opportunities you can get out of this as well. Yeah, you got to start to go backwards. You got to say, you got to look at your current patterns in the data center and not say, I want to replicate that. You say, why did I have that? Why did we make that rule? And now that we have the why, we made the rule, let's go re-architect based on why we made the rule. Tough to do though. See, that's hard work. It's so much easier to just say, make it look the way I already know it's okay. And then I'll, and then I'll click the accept button during the, uh, during the well, change review or the architectural review. <laughs> and not only is it hard work, but in many cases, you now have to bridge your prior compliance that you were certified for, ISO or SOC, with your auditor now, and then bring your auditor on this journey too. And a lot of the yeah. auditors don't understand cloud either. So, you know, it's not only are you saying, yeah, we're not going to do what we did forever and now it's all changing, but now you also got to go convince the auditors that we're still in control <laughs> and that we still have security. And, and that's, you know, for a GRC team who may not always be technical, that could be very scary and, and part of the challenge. And so I think that's why having 
GRC and your security people and, and establishing these standards and practices early and keeping them involved in these conversations really will help move this story forward for you. Otherwise, they become a huge roadblock for you in six to 12 months into your cloud transformation journey because all of a sudden things have changed and they weren't aware and they are going to cause some havoc. I mean, putting the security hats on for just a second, they, you know, there's sometimes it's, it's a little bit too much of the sky's falling, the sky's falling, cloud's absolutely insecure. How can we possibly run our workloads there? However, there is, there is, there are a few valid points to that to that argument in that in a private data center, your sort of attack vectors are limited to, um, you know, public IP space potentially or application defects if you're running a public facing web app or, or APIs. I think once once you look at deploying in the cloud, I think the attack surface is immensely larger because now there are there are public APIs which can be used to manage manage resources, which potentially or manage resources if you lose your keys. There's all kinds of mistakes you can make, many more mistakes I think you can make um, by deploying incorrectly or um, insecurely in cloud than you could do in a private data center. I mean, you can't accidentally open your NetApp file to the internet in a data center. Yeah, I mean, and not to mention just user space and memory, you know, of concerns with being, you know, hosted on a multi-tenant piece of hardware, right? And you see that with the you know, the expansion of use of enclaves, like it's, it's a, it's a real concern. So yeah, it's absolutely a larger blast, uh, attack surface for sure. Yeah. But then there's all these cool tools, right. That we can use to, um, make things more transparent, like logs for all of your, uh, every single change in your infrastructure based on API logging. Whereas how are you going to get that once someone gets into a cage, uh, if they unplugged a cable or, plugged in a, another device or locked, you know, went into a serial port. Like there's also things that are easier, I think, in the cloud. And you have options for other services too, right? Like where you can change the the change the story of the control, right? And so instead of having the sort of command and control so you can validate that it's done the right way, you you know, you have access to serverless functions that cost next to nothing to run and that can react to the, those same logs and events that are being generated just through by normal actions. And have them perform auto remediation tests to keep those guardrails in place. And so it's it's a very different operating model from this has to be reviewed by the you know the powers that be to get it into place. I mean, is is the cloud getting in your eyes a little bit there though? Because I, I know what we see and the way we control resources in the cloud are through APIs. But at some point, there are still people in data centers going into cages, plugging things in and unplugging them, and, and sort of and working in the, in the data center environment. That, that, I don't think that concern goes away, and that's that's something that I think people people forget about. Those risks are still there, and so we we have to start looking at the shared responsibility model and looking at the cloud providers, um, you know, attestations about the way they run their business. Yeah, well, and it, it, this is where I really harp back to you know the shared security responsibility you mentioned, but also trust but verify. Um, and a lot of these, you know, things, you know, the cloud providers giving you more and more tools to see, like when does a support person invoke your your account and your APIs, and they get, that gets logged into cloud trails. Um, you know, when do people enter your, you know, your cage space in some data center cloud providers? They provide that type of data. So again, I, I think the for the companies that were in colo, it's not as much of a leap as it is for those who own their own data centers <laughs> and were responsible for physical security and all these things that were sort of not there in a colo space. Uh, it, but it is, it, again, there's gaps and there's ways to think through that that you have to work through. And 
anybody who's going on this path, I think, has to have the right the right thoughts and the right methodologies to really tackle it in the right way. Um, I think the other thing that's kind of interesting as you kind of get into this is um, when you're when it's just you, liability sticks with you. <laughs> but when you go into the shared responsibility model and you start thinking about like privacy laws and PCI and like now I have a third party involved here, like all of a sudden my my liability risks suddenly go up higher and I have third party processors involved and I've got other people who now have I'm only as good as the weakest link of all the security of all of that. And how do I how do I understand that ecosystem again from you know, insurance, from audit, from all these things, those things all to be now considered into the GRC perspective and also the security perspective um, as you think through some of these things too. So again, those are good things that I understood before you get too far down the cloud path because um, the big questions that come up, you know, you go renew your cybersecurity resilience insurance and all of a sudden they're like, oh, you moved to the cloud? We have all these new questions. <laughs> and you got to have <laughs> yeah. those things through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think the role of the CCOE is, is about sort of talking down some of the, the scaremongering um, advocating for for the things which which are unique to cloud, um, I think translating the technical requirements of the control is a big yeah. a big factor of you know or you know in that process. And so, like I think that's also super important. Right? Well, how do you do it in the data center? Okay, we can do something close, but not the same. You know, yeah. does that meet you know the the compliance requirements? And it's important to remember that as much as security likes the things that you know that they've got one big hammer and well, their hammer solves things in one you know one hit. Security is all about layers, and if if you can't implement a control using one particular tool or service or configuration, then there are likely many other layers of security which you could add on top of that. Mm-hmm. I think as you get through this process, though, and, and this is this is not quick. <laughs> this part this part takes a while. Uh, this is a couple months worth of you know lots of meetings, lots of teeth gnashing, lots of pain uh, and suffering as you go through all this kind of learning and, and together. And this is where your cloud partner or your even your partner partner should be able to help you out quite a bit um, in helping you maneuver through this process because they've done it a thousand times or ten thousand times or a hundred thousand times in some cases. Um, I think the the next step out of that is really you know as you think about, all these new standards you come up with, you've gotten your alignment to the different standards, the third-party entities, your auditors on board, you've gone through this journey. Like, How do you start thinking about now codifying those? And do you think about prevention or remediation? And what are some of the techniques that you may think about with your security team that would make sense for how you want to start implementing these security things? Because you don't want to just you know, figure it out after the fact. That's too late. Yeah. No, I, I think it's it's important to keep the context of why you're shifting to the cloud like what is important to the business in terms of value is it is it the innovation is it is it the flexibility because i think that really guides you know how how you approach these things um if you're looking for the you know the agility and the innovation you have to be you have to get out of the way you you have to put guardrails in place so that you can make the right thing to do the easy thing to do and then provide remediations and response as much as possible. If you're really just looking for the flexibility and you want a little bit more control, then you can, you can use a more, you know, review approach. And it's, you know, like it's, it's less fun to do that because there's still someone sort of, you know, in way, but it, what is cool is the teams that sort of leverage technology to sort of get their cake and eat it too there, where they're, they're providing the service that's providing the review and providing that as they enable, you know, Think about you know policies for you know IOC deployments and 
having, you know, DevSecOps sort of, you know, built into that deployment process. So not only is it application deployment being, you know, automated through a CICD pipeline, but all of the security reviews and, and that being automated as part of that pipeline and, and can be reported on. It's, and integrating cool. all that into the dev process right from the beginning. So developers are, uh, they know when they're developing whether or not they're building secure software and they're deploying it in a manner on hardware that will pass security audits by having that, you know, production-like environments, all three similar. And that tends to help avoid that big, big mistake, right, of people building something that gets declined for a reason that costs a lot to change when they're ready to deploy to, to production. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really happy to start seeing the integrations directly into the IDE for some of these secure patterns, right? Cause it's, there's no, there's no earlier in the process than that. Agreed. What do you guys think about uh, security's role in the training and the cloud enablement story? I think there are some, Table stakes in, in cloud, um, you know, encrypt everything is is probably the the most important one. And I've worked with countless developers over the years who throw an OJS app over the over the wall at um, a DevOps team for deployment with no native support for for, for something like SSL. And it's oh well, you know, the, the ops team will will bolt on some wacky nginx proxy or something to to make it use SSL. I, I don't want to see that. I don't want to see that anymore. I want, what I want to see is those requirements go back to be to becoming um, you know, basic product requirements in the first sprint, sprint zero. And their tests released immediately, and they fail on CI when they're not there. Yeah, I mean, it is. It. I think a lot of you know development and ops you know, historically has been that sort of, this is split responsibility. And that leads to like some really, you know, awkward perceptions about whose job it is to be, you know, to make something secure. And it's like, it's everyone's job. <laughs> like, it's not, it's not even just security's job to make it secure, right? Like you, yeah. it, the only way this works and then in any way where you have velocity and you, you're, you have empowerment and agency in deploying your own stuff is, is by taking that responsibility. Yeah. So, so I, I think one of the one of the roles of the CCO in that case then is to is to look at the old ways of working, and figure out how how they need to transform into new ways of working. I mean, maybe you're in a data center, and um, you know you send a request to a network team to open a port between two servers. You know, we don't necessarily do that in the cloud. You can build that into your infrastructure as code. You can become aware of that, or you could be lazy and you could just open up um, the port on your your instance to you know, the entire world. And I think in sort of enforcing and putting guidelines and training people about the differences in, in how to implement security in the cloud and then um, putting guardrails around it so that if something does get to production, you can catch it before it, before it goes live you know, with mm -hmm. things like Sentinel or um, Open Policy Agent, things like that. I think these are all technologies that the, the, the CCOE should, should, should push for, really. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, in many cases, potentially even the security team should be a main implementer of these things. Like, you know, again, we're trying to democratize technology. We're trying to get it more spread out into your business to enable speed. 
Um, so in the in the past, a security control would be written, and then they'd go to ops and say, "Go implement that security control." Um, but in the cloud, again, because everything's API driven, and you know, if you're using OPA or using Sentinel or using one of the other frameworks, you know, they can write their own code for that, and they can give you a pull request, and they can then the CCOE can review it and say, "Yeah, we're we're fine with this," or we need to have more discussion. So. You know, this is a way to actually get your security team more heavily involved in the the implementation of security, which before they were just the kind of the ivory tower of like this is what security should be, but they didn't actually have to implement anything. And now you can say, well, you're going to be part of that implementation, and you're going to be part of the process to do that, and and they can be more involved and more connected to the technology of the business. Well, I think that's everything we want to cover in security. Anything we missed uh, that comes to your guys' mind that I didn't segue us properly to? <laughs> I'm, I'm going to pimp our TCP Talks interview that we did with Josh Stella from from uh, Fugue when mm-hmm. uh, a couple of years ago now, or I guess a year and a half ago maybe. That's very interesting. He goes into about he goes into talking about the risks of uh, of cloud and how it's different at the data centers and how to think about it and the types of mistakes people people tend to make. Um, you know, they're, they're selling a, a product which can help you along the way. But it's an interesting talk. That's great. Yes, I, it was a very good conversation with, with uh, Josh and Fugue and uh, what they have in the space is one of the many ways to solve some of these, you know, uh, visibility problems. So definitely check that out. Well, next week we're going to be back talking about networking and VPCs, a favorite topic uh, for me because that's my original training is in networking back in the day. You have to do switches. And so talk about all the fun things. Maybe even talk a little bit about, you know, the old days of VPC classic just for, for those memories. <laughs> for those of you who've been in the business for a long, long time. <laughs> EC2 classic. Yeah, EC2 classic. Yeah. Uh, and why, the, you know, what that, you know, kind of was and then how everyone said that was terrible and then how we ended up with VPCs, uh, which is kind of an interesting story in its own right. But uh, we'll cover all of that next week. Subnetting. Uh, we'll not do the math of subnetting, I hope. Well, Jonathan might pull it out. He likes to do math, so we'll see. But uh, that's it uh, for this week. We will talk to you all next week here in the Cloud Pod. See you next week. See you later. Good night. Bye, everybody. And that is the Week in Cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag the Cloud Pod. Or join our Slack channel. Go to our website, thecloudpod.net, for sign-up instructions.